Welcome back. I'm your host, Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. China features on the program this month as we return to take a look at how the country is faring in the wake of the coronavirus. Earlier this week, the city of Wuhan discharged from its hospitals the last of its patients infected with COVID-19, while nationwide only three new cases were reported. In the last official count, China reported 82,000 instances and 4,633 deaths. Many countries in Europe and the U.S. have blown well past that. Of course, no one knows if, when, and how a second wave of the virus will come. China, like other nations, is taking precautions. The bigger question, at least for the moment, is the economy. How hard was it hit and what long-term damage has been done? China's economic fundamentals were weak going into the crisis. Soon we'll see if banks, state-run enterprises, and manufacturers have been able to withstand the strain. At least one group, venture capitalists, appear unperturbed. Their enthusiasm for China tech startups knows no bounds. In late March alone, Chinese firms recorded 66 venture capital deals. That's the highest level of activity in 2020 and nearly the same level from the same time last year. Not surprisingly, robotics, edtech, supply chain, and healthcare companies received the lion's share of funding. Any solution that might serve the new operating realities of a post-COVID-19 world are hot prospects and getting hotter. Here to talk to me about the Chinese startup culture is Rich Robinson. He's spent over 20 years in China tracking and participating in the rise of the China tech revolution. His awe for the Chinese entrepreneur is apparent, but he has some worries too. Rich Robinson, you're joining me by phone. You are in Bali and I am here in Singapore, but we are going to be talking about the nature of entrepreneurship in a changing world. Thanks for joining. My pleasure, Steve Stein, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for having me on, Steve. But before we go much further into that meaty subject, tell us about Rich and his time in China or in the broader Asia region. Happy to. Uh, So grew up in the city of Boston. Uh, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, Cambridge University, got my MBA in Europe, lived five years in Europe, and came to China in 93 by train. And uh, the dragon swooped down, dug her talons into me, and uh, basically uh, hasn't uh, let go ever since. I just fell in love uh, with the energy of China. And uh, after my MBA, I moved to China in 96. I was there right before the handover in Hong Kong, four years in Honkers, and my 20th year now in the mainland in uh, Beijing. And I have been a serial entrepreneur, and I've been through eight startups, three as a exec in private companies that went public, five as a founder, exited three of those to publicly listed companies. Uh, and uh, I've been involved with probably 50 other startups in the war room as an angel or board member. Uh, advisor, and another few hundred as a mentor, either at 500 Startups or China Accelerator or Hacks or Stanford Ignite. And I just uh, love the art of the start. I teach entrepreneurship at the um, leading university in China, Peking University. Um, And I also teach innovation at Tsinghua, and I teach the spirit of entrepreneurship at uh, Alibaba University. I have uh, three kids, all made in China and a lovely entrepreneurial wife. And uh, I'm uh, really focused on uh, all of Asia Pacific, but from my uh, lair in uh, in Beijing. But after having been in Bali now for a few months, your your home, um, I'm thinking of a uh, of a switch to this uh, lovely tropical isle. 
Well, well, let me go back to something you just said, teaching entrepreneurship. Can it be taught? That is a fantastic question. So, you know, I've, uh, I've heard um, that um, one musician uh, was asked about a music review and he said, well, you know, writing about music is like um, dancing about architecture. Uh, that was uh, Frank Zappa. And uh, can, can you really teach entrepreneurship when it's so much like jazz? It's so improvisational and every journey is unique. And I believe probably, you know, if you want to quantify it, let's say 20%, about a fifth of it, uh, the foundation of ideation and team building and product development and fundraising and marketing and, you know, growth and potential exit. There's a, there's a lot uh, of... Uh, scabs and calluses and scar tissue that have been gained by other entrepreneurs, uh, investors, and other observers in the past. So you can sort of don that like armor and help you to go into battle. Uh, I think there are a lot of uh, fundamental things that can be learned, but a lot of it has to do with responding to the situation in the moment and also dealing with your right uh, uh, mental uh, health and mindset. What are the Chinese entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs looking for? Yeah, so I think a, a lot of people really want to understand some of the, the skills and some of the stories because not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur necessarily, but they know that it's very valuable to learn. It's almost like a, a crucible in which – it's like dog years where a year of entrepreneurship can sometimes be like seven years in a, in a corporate environment, depending on, on your role. So there's a lot of uh, um, tips and tricks and lessons that can be learned. So I actually, um, I don't even spend 20% of the time on that 20% of the foundation because there are so many resources out there. What I really like to focus on is the FUD, the F-U-D, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I bring in some of the top entrepreneurs in the world. The the beautiful part is that Beijing, a lot of people don't know this, but there's only you know one other ecosystem that can truly rival and even exceed Silicon Valley, and that's Beijing. I mean, there are ecosystems all over the world in Berlin and Singapore and uh, in Boston and you know Silicon Beach and Silicon Roundabout in London, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the Beijing startup ecosystem. Uh, is the is actually producing more unicorns and is you know as large and as dynamic as Silicon Valley in some ways. So I can bring in some world class entrepreneurs like the founder of Youku, the YouTube of China, or founder of Chunar, you know multi billion you know travel site, and have them come in and really talk about the trials and tribulations and uh, mental challenges along the way, but while also talking about the the fundamental skills. Rich, um, there have been other markets that have attempted to create that Silicon Valley feel. I mean, Singapore being one. Um, well, well, and and they've, they've struggled because – and is that just the nature of the culture or is it the receptivity of the government or is it the scale of the market? Is China and is Beijing succeeding simply because China is such a massive market and therefore the economies of scale are right? Indeed. So I think you know Israel is one exception in that Israel has done well – uh, without having a captive uh, local market. And I think also, you know, Sweden as well too, um, as, a, as a dynamic ecosystem. And that's a, that's a whole, that's a, a fascinating topic and something near and dear to my heart about why there's more 
unicorns per capita in Stockholm than any other place uh, in in the world, and why Israel has really had amazing, you know, um, uh, success, you know, because of the investment around military. But Sweden's doing it for a totally different reason, and Boston has that historical uh, uh, university connection, and you know, and, and you know, and, and Singapore has really tried to. Um, kickstart it and force start it through through governmental subsidies. But I think fundamentally, Silicon Valley and China or Beijing have done really well because they have a captive uh, audience. I mean, you really need you really need users. You know, that's really what um, is uh, is important. And I think to be able to have a captive local user base really helps to um, increase the uh, speed and cycles in which to experiment and find some success and then ultimately revenue and scale. You've been doing this a long time and you've been in that market a long time. What was the tipping point? When did you feel like uh, momentum had built in the China market and entrepreneurship and the startup culture was really taking hold? Yeah, fantastic question. So I think, you know, just as if you look at an economy, when economy starts to actually move from export to consumption, then if it doesn't get caught in the middle income trap, it can really do very well. And I think it's the same in China. When China went from sort of copycat culture to um, homegrown innovation, then you could really see uh, incredible changes. So, you know, I've been there 24 years now and I would go to Stockholm or Tokyo or New York and go, wow, this place is in the future. You know, I love China. I love its dynamism and its scale and its, you know, energy. But, you know, I kind of go back and, you know, have to sacrifice things because it's not quite as um, advanced. And I think about five years ago, you saw uh, uh, some changes. And then around four years ago, you're like, wow, it's all kind of like caught up in some ways. And about three years ago, you're like, wow, China is catapulted, just completely, just like a slingshot into the future. And there's so many examples around that about mobile payments. Like China's become a completely cashless society over the last two, three years. And it's a half decade ahead of any other place in the world when it comes to mobile payments. It's just so fluid and easy. And uh, that pragmatism and speed and scale of China has just uh, enabled that. And there are so many other examples around med tech and ed tech and smart retail and electric mobility. Um, And there's a number of factors and reasons behind that. But in some ways, China's really uh, just... uh, accelerated uh, into the into the future. So, so you're saying it's the, the sophistication of the market, the preparedness of the domestic market to accept and embrace what entrepreneurs are offering. Yeah, you know, I think there really is a sophistication now uh, that's that's really uh, come into the market where there's, any, you know, China I've kind of described as a tree with like 5,000 years of roots that go deep, deep, deep into the ground. And you have to really understand dynastic China and, you know, Chinese Confucian, you know, uh, uh, culture, I think to really do well in China, but there's also the, 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 the above ground with the tree kind of moving in real time to grab uh, sunlight or deflect from the wind or, you know, uh, grab, uh, grab a uh, rain. And it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating how quick and nimble and, uh, how rapidly, Chinese consumers and entrepreneurs will move. And I think, you know, that's for me the number one theme that I think people don't truly understand about China is that it is so incredibly fast to change. The pace and pulse is incredibly rapid. 
And that's, um, that's due, that's down to just the, the, the pragmatism and entrepreneurial drive and, and scale of China. And why is that? Is that because the nature of there's so much competition, people feel the urge and the need to move faster than they otherwise might? Is it the nature of the people or the entrepreneurs themselves, access to technology, platforms, money? Why is that acceleration so much more evident in China? Yeah, it's really it's a really great question. So I think, you know, I usually frame China and Korea and Japan um, as, you know, it's, it's like China, planet China, planet Korea, planet Japan, and then ROW, rest of the world. Mm. And so there's a lot of uh, commonalities and threads, you know, despite their historical differences and cultural. And, you know, there's a lot of differences as well, too. But there's a lot of similarities. And in some ways, Korea and Japan are, you know, they're, you know Korea is really accelerated in, in a lot of ways and, you know, winning uh, the uh, Academy Award and, you know, BTS as a group and car companies and Japan in some ways has kind of uh, had a burst in the 80s, but is, is in, in, into the 90s a little bit, but has kind of become a little bit, little bit more stagnant. But China's really uh, able to shed a lot of its uh, cultural constraints to be able to just pursue what is pragmatic. And I, 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 you know, who knows exactly why, but I think there's been over the last you know, few hundred years, you know, every decade, some sort of, you know, really challenging upheaval for China. So China is incredibly resilient, incredibly anti-fragile in a way. And as soon as they see something where there's an, an opportunity and ability to improve their condition, then you see the consumer just completely go, yep, money, see you later, cash, over the shoulder, I'm embracing the the QR code. Mm. And there, there's, there's so many other examples of that where, you know, it's a... Um, you know, 800, 900 million people online, and um, you know, most of them are online through a mobile phone, and they're just doing everything through through that um, paradigm and doing it in a in a way uh, that is just at scale. And uh, there's an incredible uh, acceptance to to change. Uh, Rich, tell us a little bit about the startup community. Has it become elitist? Is there now this clique that says, we've done it before, you're successful, and therefore, we're prepared to fund you, and therefore, our opportunities for the unknowns uh, to get into the market uh, uh, more difficult now than they were before? I mean, you know, I think most ecosystems, one of the biggest um, advantages to that uh, proximity is that there is a very fluid network where there's law firms and VC firms and large companies that then create all of these millionaires that become uh, future entrepreneurs and investors and pools of employees. So I think, of course, that's uh, a lubricant that those kind of relationships and reputations that really fuel any kind of ecosystem. But, you know, let me give you an example of the most valuable startup in the world right now is based in Beijing. Um, and it was started as an artificial intelligence uh, service to read the news. So this one entrepreneur who was, I think, 29 years old at the time, former Alibaba employee, he saw that people were reading the news, but it wasn't, um, they weren't using recommendation systems like Spotify or, you know, Amazon to, to recommend follow on articles. And he couldn't get funded. He was really, he couldn't get arrested. And he finally got a couple million bucks from, from SIG, Susquehanna Investment Group. And, uh, they had a very, very popular uh, product called Junior Totia, like daily kind of like headlines. And then from there, they bought uh, Musical.ly and they launched TikTok. 
and now the company's worth you know seventy eighty billion dollars. Uh, um, I was at, I was at their headquarters about you know two and a half years ago. They had about um, thirty five hundred employees. Um, they had one foreigner uh, who I knew in the group. I was over visiting her, and today they have a hundred thousand employees yeah. in two and a half years. A hundred thousand employees in two hundred offices around the world. And that's TikTok. They are incredibly profitable. And they are, um, you know, uh, looking to uh, potentially, you know, go go public. But I think right now they're just staying they're staying private. But you know that that company was started only seven years ago. And at the time, people thought, you know what, with Tencent, with Alibaba, with these other big players, it's really difficult to break free. Just like Facebook and Google dominate, you know, eighty percent of all advertising, you're really kind of beholden. But that's not true. So, so the tic- they really broke. They really broke that you know elitist you know uh, limited story. So did did TikTok get lucky because they knew the right people and they or they were just tenacious or there was a unique idea or application that somebody finally hit on? What was the breakthrough moment for them, from the best of your understanding? So the founder of ByteDance, as a, you know, Jin Rototiao, he's an introverted you know hardcore engineer and you know just excellent at. Uh, creating product and uh, experimenting. The, the, like this is the thing about entrepreneurship is that nobody knows. Mm. Nobody has any idea. Everybody, oh, this movie's going to be a hit. This song is going to be a hit. This play in football is going to be a, a touchdown. It's all speculation. Nobody has any idea until after it launches and it goes. You know, Uber. I, you know, there's some investors that were like, "That's a ridiculous idea," or Airbnb, or whatever, and. Uh, you have to just get at bat and take more bets and move move more you know quickly and experiment and have you know, reduce those cycles. And they they bought musically, um, but then they were able to really vastly improve the product and find what people wanted. And uh, and now they're you know rivaling you know Facebook in some ways. And uh, I think you know it really you know at its core everything's really about the product. And the thing is, users don't even know what they want until they actually uh, get it in front of them. So. It's really about those incredibly, you know, fast and smart, you know, product ideas and uh, development cycles. So, so sharp then, engineering, then, sharp engineering, tenacious attitude. Indeed, yeah, and then and then being able to like operate and scale. Like I think, you know, there's been a lot of failures of China, of, of U.S. companies coming into China. Um, it's I, I often describe it as the cave in Indiana Jones where people are going after that gold idol, but they go in and there's corpses and skeletons and all kinds of booby traps and dangerous things along the way. And even if you get to the gold idol, you grab that, you get out, and then the giant rock, the market tries to crush you. And then you finally get out of the cave and then the locals just take it away from you, right? So there's been very, very few examples of successful companies uh, going into China. And, and, And the converse is true. There's not that many Chinese companies that have been that successful going outside of China. And I would, I would contend that's because that really, they haven't really tried as much yet um, because the domestic market is so large. But TikTok has been cr- crazily successful in, 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 you know, in, a, in an outsized way. And from what I understand is that they have very localized offices around the world. A lot of times people will try to put their local staff and post them somewhere else and try to keep the culture you know, the same as uh, the mothership. And uh, it makes things, you know, smoother, but maybe less successful. And they've basically localized in all these places around the world. And, of course, it's a hot mess trying to deal with the cultures and languages. But, if it, you know, you have to localize and, and, and operate and work well. And that's, 
um, that's what they've done. And it's, uh, it seems to be working. Yeah, I think that's a universal truth. I'd say even with U.S. or European companies who try to create one model, universal, uh, let's do it the same way we do it in the U.S., and then try to roll that out. I mean, we've seen examples with Uber in Southeast Asia. I mean, they failed, basically. Sure. Or, or even Netflix mm-hmm. has struggled, come up against regulators because uh, they don't want to play that game. But there are different media yeah. regulations or media requirements yeah. that are unique. And, and I'd say it's probably true we see with some of the Chinese companies coming to Southeast Asia as well, like uh, Lazada, you know, I mean, they've, they've had their ups and downs and their bumps. And uh, many times, because I think initially, there was an attempt to try to push the Chinese uh, leaders into those roles where they weren't connected to the local community and yes. didn't know how to manage yes, appropriately. Would you argue or would you say that, that this is probably true, no matter where you are, where you or originate? Uh, this is something that people should be mindful of as they scale. Indeed. So it's it's so ridiculously difficult to take that lightning in a bottle and then replicate that in another market, unless there's really pull from that market. And you think about it, who you're really putting in charge, you're putting in charge somebody, you know, who uh, functions well in the mothership, but or or maybe has functioned well locally, but maybe in a more uh, executive fashion than an entrepreneurial fashion. And, you know, they're just getting outpaced. That happened again and again and again in China, where eBay bought the number one player in China and then put tons of resources into it. And then Jack Ma famously said, all right, eBay is a shark in the ocean, but we're not in the ocean. Uh, we're in China and we're a crocodile in the Yangtze. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, a shark swims into the Yangtze River. I'll put my money on a crocodile. And they crushed eBay and turned it, you know, Taobao. And that was like during SARS, um, the last, you know, epidemic in the 0203 when they launched that and you know the rest is history it's become incredibly popular uh you know e-commerce platform in china so i think yeah it's really notoriously difficult to execute well on a, on a, on a local level Rich, is that game over, that idea of foreign entities trying to penetrate the market with uh, digital solutions? has Have the Chinese players simply mastered that and do they own it to such a degree where it's a fool's errand to t- attempt to kind of break into the to, to the China market? Yeah, I mean, that's a, just as we talk about startup ecosystems, this is something very near and dear to my heart and like a whole nother topic of conversation. Um, there's just there's just really not that many examples of companies doing doing well in China. And um, there's, a, there's a few, but the fact is that uh, it's become a very, very insanely competitive red ocean. And unless you're really starting from a local uh, perspective, it's, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to really uh, crack the, uh, uh, the China market um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, large, a large startup looking, looking to enter there, I think. Perhaps like smaller niche startups that really have some sort of defensible position. You know, you need a moat and you need an unfair advantage. And if you if you can't bring that to the table with some deep technology or something, you know, really defensible, then there's you're just going to get you know outcopied and out, outpaced, and then it's and, and then it's over. You know, I, I'd be remiss not to mention we're in the throes of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I'm just wondering to what degree that this situation is impacting the startup community in China and if there's a possibility that it will create a rethink about how startups build, how they get funded, how they're supported, how they endure. Any things that you're noticing, even though you're not in China at this moment, uh, any observations or thoughts? 
Well, I think it may be less impactful on the actual fundamental approach of startup um, creation and, and growth, um, but it's going to have an outsized impact on um, just some industries. I think it's going to accelerate some industries by a half decade or even a decade. I mean, I, you know, the obvious ones are um, ed tech and uh, work from home movement. And, you know, China was already eminently, you know, um, suited for uh, a, uh, a crisis like this because the delivery is just so advanced in China for e-commerce and payment is all completely cashless. So the whole delivery uh, ecosystem just worked um, to its advantage, but was also, you know, bust, buttressed up and, um, you know, even supported by this. And then ed tech, of course, um, just the, the numbers are, are, are phenomenal um, and, you know, work from home. I mean, you know, even in the West, Zoom was started by a Chinese um, uh, founder, uh, but, uh, you know, they've gone from 10 million daily active users to 200 million mm. and, you know, 2000% increase. And, and of course, they've had their challenges around security and privacy. But, you know, I, I think any entrepreneur will trade that off. There's always some sort of fire raging. And if you're going to, if that's the fire you're going to rage, that's going to rage, then that's okay to trade off for 2000% increase. Let's say it settles down at 500% increase. That's still in, incredible. So I think, I think we're going to just see the future accelerated uh, by uh, by this whole uh, crisis. So you're pointing to new opportunities that might arise by virtue of this crisis and the ability of the Chinese to move quickly and to toggle uh, quickly means that they could get on to new ideas faster than others. Is that what you're suggesting? Indeed, yeah. And I think also during a downturn, there's so many examples of great companies that are built during a downturn because then you can really be kind of heads down and if you've already gotten your funding rounds and you have some runway, then, you know, there's amazing access to talent and you can uh, really be maybe less distracted and really focus on on just uh, building out the best the best product. So I'm sure we're going to be, you know, surprised and very you know pleased that some of the new ideas that are coming out of this, you know, from China and around the world. Of course, even in the best of times, the mental stress and the angst of building a startup is tough enough. Uh, tight cash flow, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of hurdles, uh, investor pressure. What must it be like for some of these organizations today who are sucking wind? You know, they, they're now in a situation where um, timelines are changed, things are on hold, uh, you know, opportunities to go to market have, have, uh, uh, have, have diminished. Uh, what would be your expectation and what do you know, what can you say about the Chinese entrepreneur in terms of their resiliency in a time like this? Mm, indeed, yeah. So these uh, companies in delivery or ed tech or, you know, communications that are doing well, not, notwithstanding, there's a lot of other companies that are just um, going to go through down rounds at a best case scenario or just completely disappear. Um, it's just going to decimate uh, the startup community in a way that, I don't think 08 did as much, but I, th I think more back to like the dot-com bust in, in 01. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's already brutal and I'm already on calls with people and I really try to be a good egg in the ecosystem and see, um, you know, where I, where I can be, where I can be helpful. Um, I think, uh, yeah, this has really accelerated it. I think the, the entire glo global, um, you know, mental health, you know, perhaps that's a, even a startup opportunity 
of, of all the anxiety. And I saw this one tweet. It's like, why am I not learning a language or the ukulele while I'm stuck at home? It's because I'm riddled with anxiety and fear. That's why. So I think that kind of fear and anxiety, that's the the, the layer that um, is on top of all entrepreneurial pursuits. And I think there's a big um, sort of mixed message in that a lot of people are attracted to entrepreneurship because it seems so sexy because of the, the bias in the media and you see all these winners. But you know the truth about entrepreneurship is that the most likely outcome is failure and the daily pursuit is so difficult and so unpredictable and so uncertain and so riddled with, with fear and, and doubt that it's a very, very bumpy and rocky road along the way. And, uh, you know, I often say, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Um, when, when you talk about uh, entrepreneurship and I think, uh, that's something that just doesn't get enough press. Mm. And, and it's not just about entrepreneurs that have just crash and burn and, go through their, you know, uncle's retirement savings and, you know, become, you know, enemies with their college roommate they started this with and et cetera, et cetera. I'm just talking about, you know, people that maybe are uh, doing okay. Their business is sustainable, but it's actually in the process. They've hurt their health and their relationships and their, you know, um, uh, you know, marriage as well too. Or, you know, perhaps even other entrepreneurs who have like done really well who are just drowning right now because they're they're thinking, wow, I I sort of maxed out. Now I'm actually uh, expected to go to you know one or two levels up, and can I really do this, or do I have the energy to do this, or do I really want to do this? And uh, you know, the, all all those kind of struggles. That's something that I'm spending more of my time focusing on and getting people to open up and talk vulnerably and openly about their struggles and how they've address those. Yeah. So as we discussed, I'm uh, working on a, a podcast that will turn into a book called Imposterpreneur. I think as I age and now I'm on the wrong side of 50, I, I realize, you know, just like Olaf from uh, Frozen, it's like, wow, since you're older, you know everything. Um, and actually, as I get older, I realize, wow, people are even more riddled with uh, imposter, imposter syndrome and um, in some ways it's healthy. If you're not pursuing something where you don't feel like, uh, you maybe can't do it, then maybe you're not, uh, aiming high enough or trying hard enough, but, uh, it doesn't make it, uh, it doesn't make it easy. And I think, uh, a lot of people, um, fake it till they make it. And they're not really very open and vulnerable about the challenges they have. So that means that early stage entrepreneurs or even some other entrepreneurs are like, wow, what's the matter with me? Everybody else is up into the right and crushing it and riding their unicorn to, their cool, hip co-working space while it farts rainbows of glitter. And I'm, I'm here just looking at myself in the mirror, going from self-doubt to self-hatred and, you know, what's, uh, um, what's wrong with me? And the fact is, if you're really doing entrepreneurship in an, you know, an innovation-driven enterprise where, in, where you're doing something that hasn't been done before and can it even be done? Or maybe you're doing it, but then you have to go to the next level after a round of funding or hires or product shipping. Then you're, you're really just riddled with that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And how, how can you best balance that and, and move forward? And I think um, that's something that I uh, know from very much you know, a lot of personal experience and 
through my friends and networks, and it's a it's an important topic. Are you suggesting that the imposter syndrome is something which is actually undermined the ability to succeed? Certainly, I think I think people uh, feel that uh, am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I able to do this? As a CEO of a company, you have to continuously fire yourself. Like if you're not scaling your startup, then you're not growing. Then you're not you know that's really the core of what a startup is. Like you can be an entrepreneur. But you're not in a startup unless you're doing something that's really scaling. And every step along the way, you have to get rid of you know your uh, hats that you're wearing and bring somebody else in. And I, I remember talking to somebody who said, wow, I just raised all this money and I know I have to hire people that are better than me. But now I have so much pressure and so much funding that I'm going to have to hire people that are so much better than me that they're going to realize that I'm really full of shit and I don't know what I'm doing. There's this line between imposter syndrome and also founder syndrome. And founder syndrome is it's my baby. I'm going to see this through. I want to achieve uh, certain things. And then I'm not comfortable handing off because nobody understands it the way I do. That's one thing. But the other one what you're referring to is is imposter syndrome, which is really around I'm going to show the out the external community, whether they be customers or the marketplace or investors, that I'm fine. Everything's good. It's all rosy, right? And and therefore, what you're saying is that there, and in many ways, that's what the market and what investors want to hear, and therefore, they're playing to their audience. Are you suggesting that for the mental health uh, of an individual, obviously, they need to have someone they can talk to and be a little more exposed and vulnerable? I get that. But from basically their ability to ultimately succeed, are you suggesting that imposter syndrome prevents them from getting real and therefore being able to address the most immediate problems? I mean, potentially, sure. I mean, there there are some people that are riddled with imposter syndrome, and still, the pull from the market just brings their company um, to to success. Um, I think it's not just about the mental side of it as well, too, where you may be struggling so hard with something, you just you know what? I'm just going to lean into this and become a workaholic and completely abandon my exercise and sleep and diet and you know. Uh, time for thinking and time with family and time with friends. And in doing so, uh, I'm going to address my my fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But I'm also going to just completely crush my my uh, my personal and you know physical and mental and you know relationship health. Mm. And I think it's all it's all it's all interrelated. And you know maybe you know the the, the stats show like one out of twenty startups. If you're really you know a venture funded startup, you, you're you're gonna probably have some kind of liquidity event. And then maybe one out of those 20, so 400, you're going to have a liquidity event that's, you know, maybe going to move the needle. And then one out of those 20, say one out of 8,000 is going to really, um, you know, get a lot of press. And um, that's, uh, that's what people read about. And people, you know, see that and they think, you know, wow, I, I could, you know, who, who is that superhero, right? And a, a lot of it has to do with timing and luck. The number one predictor of success with startups is, is timing. Um, so you could have the same kind of startup and, um, you know, maybe you're too early and it's like it's like being wrong anyway or you're just too late. And uh, so you have to really look at, I think, entrepreneurship as a vocation and something that you're going to have multiple at-bats and, you know, Really think about it as as a way to become a better version of yourself. Mm. So even if it's not going well, or even if you're really struggling, um, you're really thinking about okay, I can't control 
what happens to me, but I can control my response to that. And how can I emerge from this as a, uh, a stronger person that uh, then I can use those skills and my, my energy and my great relationships with my family and friends and my health to be able to go back in the arena again. Mm. And, you know, that's, a, that's, that's something that I think is people just think about, you know what, this is it. I have this uh, fiduciary responsibility to my investors. Therefore, I am going to put my heart and soul into this. And I am going to sacrifice my health and my sleep and my relationships and my mental health to be able to just, you know, leap across the finish line. Mm. But statistically, it's, it shows that that's, that's not going to happen. Yeah. You're going to end up not finishing the race and you're going to be broken. So I think you and I spoke about this one uh, metaphor of this craftsman in Japan who is uh, the number one craftsman for these, you know, these vases. And first one in the uh, factory and the, the last one to leave. And, you know, one night he tries to move the vase into the kiln to get the perfect position. And in doing so, he falls into the kiln and gets burned up uh, into the kiln. And the next morning, his team comes in and says, oh, oh where, where, where is he? He's always here early. And they look, they look into the kiln, the fire's out, and there's a vase in there and it's perfect. It's the perfect vase. He got subsumed by the fire and in doing so put the perfect sort of lacquer and finish onto that vase. And, you know, don't, don't be that person. Don't, don't let yourself be completely consumed by what you're pursuing to the detriment of your mental, physical, and, and, and other health. And I think there's, you know, number one, a really great uh, a need in the market to let people know that, you know, that's something that's universally uh, felt, and then number two about how um, how that can be addressed and what's the right kind of balance. Yeah, I heard don't play with fire. <laughs> that too. So that too, kids. Yeah, that, kids, that's put the matches. Right down. That's right. That's the moral. But it, listen, I, let me ask you one other question, Rich, because uh, you know, and and this is more uh, crystal ball. What are the dark spots on the startup environment in China? What's not working, and where could and uh, where does there need to be some shift or change in order for it to go the next level? Yeah, indeed. So there's there's some pursuits in China, like uh, it's called Jojo Leo, 996, 9 a.m., 9 p.m., six days a week. Uh, people just grinding it out. And they have these, um, you know, legions of engineers. They're called Mai-Yi, like, like, like ants, like just actually living in dorms and just, you know, like a, um, just legions of troops trying to... to to, to bring these uh, startups to success. So that's, that's a, that's a dark side. The other dark side is that, you know, China's really just thrown, you know, tons of money at things and like, let's just scale at any cost. And there's, you know, a company called OFO, OFO that um, just made, you know, millions of bicycles and burned through hundreds of millions in cash. And also Lucky and Coffee, which has just been shown to, you know, they wanted to rival Starbucks and just, you know, scale 3x Starbucks locations and do everything, you know, virtually, you can't use cash, everything's mostly delivery or pickup. And then they've been shown, you know, in the pursuit of ultra scale to um, underreport their overreport their revenues by as much as you know, 50%. And uh, so I think these these sort of um, intense uh, funding and, and, and scaling pursuits, 
there's a lot of uh, um, victims and you know some injuries uh, along the way. So, and so then I think in the future, yeah. So some inherent, a bit of an inherent subversive recklessness. It sounds like. Well, you know, you're an investor and you see that there are companies that have scaled. Like one company, Mobike, was bought by Meituan, which is you know publicly listed um, company in for three point six billion. And the other player, Ofo, um, died. And Ofo was the first of the market, and Meituan got more funding and just executed better. So you're an investor, and you're like, let's just scale it up because it worked. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it certainly doesn't doesn't always work. Mm. And uh, so, so there's you know, a mentality I mean, shift. Is that what you're saying, yeah, yeah. Rich? That there needs to be a shift in in how people think about not just building a business but scaling a business and thinking about the health of of their employees and their customers that goes beyond just winning at all costs. Is is that what you're saying? Sure. And, you know, that's not just a China only thing. You know, I met Travis from Uber when he first came to sniff around into China. And, you know, he, you know, one of he's always, he said to me and he said it before that one of his, you know, great skills is just fundraising. He was able to to raise, you know, outraise Lyft and outraise out other players. And um, I think, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Right. Because the VCs or the other funds want to give cash and they're looking for, you know, it's the same thing with SoftBank. You know, SoftBank's done the same thing. They just publicly said they regretted their $9 billion investment into WeWork, right? They're just looking for this, you know, incredible leverage and scale. And, you know, China's not the, the only place where, where that's happened. But, you know, it certainly is is something that is a, is a, is a challenge there. And I think another challenge, of course, are the storm clouds between the U.S. and China where, you know, now they're saying they want to regulate and maybe block TikTok and, you know, Huawei and, and others. There's, 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 there's challenges around this potential decoupling between the, the U.S. and China, too. I mean, for me, I'm an apolitical, you know, guy who just really wants to pursue innovation. And um, I believe that entrepreneurship, despite all its challenges, is a very worthy pursuit. But, you know, China has incredible competition and, and innovation there. And that's something that I really like to you know, advocate. And, and there's a lot of things that could be learned from China um, in terms of specifically speed and pace. Mm. Like I, I remember I ran the New York Marathon um, and I saw Lance Armstrong um, over the fence um, in an elite group. And he had uh, a pacer um, with him um, who carried all the waters and gels and um, had the watch and just kept him on a, on a, on a two uh, hour and 30 minute pace. And I, I read later that he got to the end of the marathon and he was like, that was miserable. I hated it. I did a marathon in two and a half hours. I can ride a bike, but I don't really run. I'm not a runner. Um, and I think, in, but in some ways, China as a kind of pacer to kind of show what is possible in terms of speed um, and the kind of pace that, that things can be done. I think there's there's some lessons lessons to be learned. Some Some lessons, you know, just like Confucius says, I walk down the street with two men from what I learned what I should do from what I learned what I should not do. I think China is a, a great um, market, just like you know most markets on, on, on how to learn what to do and what not to do. So, so other uh, organizations should uh, think about learning to pace against China but may hate, it, hate the process of doing so. Sure. So I remember the, uh, the, the chairman of Daimler who, who since stepped down, he said, yeah, sure, China is going to uh, copy and China's going to, you know, really be um, 
a tough pace to com- place to compete with. But therefore, we must be in China and we're going to have a localized team in China and we're going to innovate and we're going to move quickly in China. So China can copy us, but they're going to be, you know, six to nine or 12 months behind us. Mm. So, you know, just completely decoupling and saying like, oh, I'm not going to be in there because of, you know, the rapid pace of change and because of maybe some challenges around them, maybe copying us. Like, you know, there's going to be emulation and copying, uh, you know, anyway. So you might as well be in the arena and be the sort of strongest and most resilient version of yourself so that you can stay, um, you know, apace with, with what's happening locally. Yeah. Fascinating. Rich, thank you so much for spending time with us, for your insights. Uh, we wish you well and uh, we'll be in touch. Right back at you, Steve. Thanks so much. All the best. That was my conversation with Rich Robinson, longtime advisor to China tech startups and a lecturer in entrepreneurship. To listen to Rich talk about the Chinese startup landscape is to conjure images of a Spartan army amassing wealth and making engineering conquests one day at a time. The Chinese entrepreneur is resolute, perhaps no more so than your average Silicon Valley variety, but there's something more at play, a pace perhaps that suggests time is fleeting. For those living in a centralized economy, I suppose there's always the possibility that government might criticize or cut off development. There's a case of online gaming. In 2018, the government established a gaming regulator to monitor and ultimately curtail gamers, arguing that too much gaming was bad for the eyes. This despite the fact that China is home to some of the largest game manufacturers in the world. In other instances, privately developed technology has been co-opted by government agencies who want access to innovations but may not want to pay the full market price. These, I assume, are qualified risks for many Chinese startups. The fact remains, of the slightly more than 400 unicorns operating in the world today, more are based in China than anywhere else. Not too shabby. It's an extraordinary achievement for a country that just 20 years ago had a mere 2% internet penetration rate, compared to 50% in the U.S. Like all good things, explosive growth has its downside. Rich points out that the Chinese entrepreneur is no different from any other when it comes to contending with those psychological demons, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Add in a global pandemic, and you have a recipe for some serious emotional and mental dismembering. Remaining blindly optimistic while market-facing, while contending with a series of personal, health, and organizational disasters, is no easy task. It's what Rich calls the imposterpreneur syndrome. He wonders if maybe the time has come for entrepreneurs to get real. Is it possible? Could the COVID-19 episode usher in an era of greater empathy, attention to self, forgiveness even? Nah, probably not. Not unless the good men and women in the vulture capital world change their stripes. Not in my lifetime. That's it for this episode of Inside Asia. Still want to be an entrepreneur? Maybe that corporate job isn't looking so bad after all. What's your take on China and the thing that fuels entrepreneurial passion? Tell us what you think. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Leave us a message or start a discussion. If you don't subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast, please do by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com or download any or all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And lastly, if you can't find time to listen, do subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom, enter your name and email address, and start receiving our updates. 
Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.